What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, you fill up my senses like a night in the forest. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, hey, guys, I want to bombard your brains with a little bit of weirdness. Okay. You ever think about the fact that the way the world looks to you is not necessarily how the world actually is? And I'm not trying to get all philosophical, like, what is reality? Or metaphysical or anything like that. No, I'm trying to comment actually on the nature of the way we perceive. And I'm not saying that your eyes don't give you accurate information about the world, because they do a pretty good job of creating a model of reality that's useful for us. Our our brain messes it up a little bit in translation, but sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. But what I'm talking about is that the model of reality created by light through our eyes as interpreted by our brains is not the only way 
to create an accurate model of the physical world, right? Yeah, no, oh, it's, sure. It's necessarily limited. I mean, what, when we talk about the visible spectrum of light, that immediately tells you that there is a spectrum that is not visible to us. So if we were able to see the entire spectrum of light, the world would look very different. So knowing that there are entire sections of light, and that's just one of our senses, right? We've got plenty of senses we're going to be right. talking about in this episode. It's sort of our primary sense. Yeah, it's one of those ones that's easy to talk about. Uh, it's It means that our perception of the world around us is by necessity limited. Yeah. And that there's stuff going on all over the place that we just cannot even perceive. Yeah. We, we've got only a small wedge of any given um, spectrum of stuff that we can take in via our senses. Yeah. Well, what you bring up there is that there are ways of creating models of reality that don't even necessarily use light. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't use electromagnetic radiation like you could use sound. Sure. Or you could maybe interpret the world in terms of chemicals. Right. If you mm-hmm. had uh Really strong, yeah. yeah. Chemoreceptors, like maybe a very strong sense of smell, could actually let you determine the the relative locations of objects around you. Exactly. So in this episode, we wanted to explore the idea of augmenting our senses, perhaps extending our senses so that we have new ones beyond the ones we already have. So not just boosting the ones we have already, the ones that everyone is familiar with. Right. Uh, are, are familiar with. I mean, that, you can use a telescope to see farther. Exactly. That's that's a no brainer. Or you could use, uh, you know, other other technology to allow you to see things that you normally couldn't see. For example, night vision goggles allow you to see at night. And we're going to talk a little bit about some other technologies that uh, might allow that sort of thing, too, in various ways. Basically, we want to focus on the eventual possibility of radically augmenting the way we create models of the physical world with our brains. Right. So I guess we should start by talking about the senses we already have. And one of the cool facts about our bodies is that you have way more senses than you realize or probably realize. Well, it's more than just those five senses that we all learn about in, say, kindergarten. Right. Although uh, some argue that these other senses we'll be talking about somehow are wrapped up in one or more senses. So it all depends upon who who's doing the talking, right? Right. In some cases, you have someone saying, no, there are you know, X number of senses that are way more than five. And other people would say, well, let's be fair. Three or four of the ones you mentioned are really wrapped up in the five, the five big ones. But it all is an ongoing debate. And it, again, depends really from your point of view. But yes, it is more complicated than just saying, what is it, a sight, uh, smell. There's also what, that, there's a taste, there's that touch, and uh, hearing. Right. Let's talk the big five. All right. What is sight? Okay, that that's seeing. It's also... <laughs> no, a, I know that. It's also... How does it work, Jonathan? Ophthalmoception is what it's also called. Say that word it's, again. Ophthalmoception. <laughs> hmm. That it's one a, I got. It's cells in your eyes that are, that are um, sensitive to light. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so and photons. so yeah, to photons. Right. And so they absorb photons and send a signal to your brain and yeah. tell it some stuff. Yeah. The brain <laughs> the brain actually does a lot of the work here. So we've got essentially photoreceptors. So kind of mm. similar to what you would think of in any kind of light sensor. It's it's the organic equivalent to that. So you have these photoreceptors. You've got rods and cones that are able to do different things. Um, and the number that you have will determine what kind of sight you have based on from organism to organism, because 
different organisms have different uh, arrays, right? So something like a bird of prey has much keener sight than, say, a human being does. Other animals may have vision that is not nearly as strong as what a human being has. But at any rate, we have these photoreceptor cells that can uh, uh, detect light that's coming. Uh, they, they're able to con- see these visible images from the visible light spectrum, and lights bouncing off of stuff right. going into our eyes. That sends the little electrical impulses to our brain, which then can interpret it and turn that into what we consider images. Yeah. And the way things look to us really are just ways our brain makes sense of different pieces of data. So, like, when you see two different colors, the the actual physical data difference there is that you've got different wavelengths of light coming into your eyes. Yeah. Which is why I blame everybody else for saying I'm not devastatingly handsome, because it's really how they're constructing me in their brains, not me. It's not they my fault. They don't realize how green you are. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a constant source of irritation. But no, no. So, this, but this is again, this kind of illustrates this idea, and not to get again too philosophical or metaphysical, but this idea that. A lot of what we consider reality is this construct that's happening in our minds. It's, yeah. it's our brains being able to interpret all the information, the data that's coming in yeah. it's and not, making sense of it. It's not that the data doesn't reflect something real, but the way we put it together is a simulation going on in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, interesting there. Uh, next, we've got in our, our notes here, we have smell, the olfaception. <laughs> That's just one way of spelling Ol- it. Actually. I think there's it's olfacoception. Olfacoception. There's all, well, there's actually three or four different spellings of it, and it all depends upon the spelling. There's some that oh. have no O in it. Disclaimer now, a lot of the single word names for some of these senses have different spellings and stuff. So don't yeah. write in correcting us. We know. Right, yeah. right. We just don't know how to say them. So <laughs> that's that part you can write in about. Like, you don't know how to say this. Yes, okay. you are correct. What happens in your nose? All right. You got these uh, receptors. So molecular receptors in your nose that uh, think of them as sort of it's like a key and lock situation. You have these receptors that bind with certain molecule molecular shapes. Right. So when those molecules make contact with those receptors, then you have a signal sent to the brain that says, ah, that is X smell. So you have hundreds of different types of receptors in your uh, in, in your nose, Joe. In, in your nose. In you my nose. Yes. Uh, in, <laughs> in, in any given person's in nose. In any given person's nose. Now, granted, if you were to look at, say, uh, other animals, they have maybe a wider range and a lot more of them. Dogs have like 220 million of these receptor Oof. cells. Not different types, but 220 million uh, across the various range of types. And so the number uh, determines how well you can smell, how how. Well, you can detect an odor to, no matter how faint the smell might be, like yeah. how little of that molecule might be in the atmosphere. Or maybe how little of a difference you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, so, yeah, the the kinds that we have, the different molecules, which represent different smells, can bind to those different receptors. That sends the signal to our brain very much the way the light can uh, makes a nerve impulse go to our brain and our brain interprets it. So when you stop and smell the roses, the molecules you're inhaling are binding to specific receptors in your uh, nasal passages. So essentially, we're talking like little neurons that cool. are firing off. Let's talk about a related sense, taste. Taste, yeah. Taste and smell are very closely related. In fact, taste and smell together are what allow us to detect flavor, right? Because taste and flavor are two different things. A lot of us kind of equate the two, 
Uh, sure. But um, I mean, that's the reason if, for example, you've ever been sick and noticed that food tastes very different when your nose is stuffed up. Yeah. Uh, this mm-hmm. is why. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And there are so many times where I've been sick and there are certain things that the tastes are very simple or the flavors are very simple, I should say. The flavors are very simple and therefore the taste is not that different. And I go with it. So something like tomato soup or huh. chicken noodle soup tend to have very simple flavors. And so you don't lose a whole lot in translation. Uh, well, it's also uh, your your tongue is really good at uh, receiving certain chemicals. Like, for example, salt is something that's hard to smell, but very easy to taste. Yes. And so that's something that that's why salty food like like chicken broth is is kind of fine for for Yes. It, it doesn't taste that weird. Right, right. So like you were saying, we have these sensory receptors that bind to very specific types of molecules, very much kind of like the, the smell. Uh, in this case, you have the basic uh, tastes, which include the sweet, bitter, sour, salty, and then umami or savory. Yeah. So th- this is these uh, smell and taste would both be sort of a form of chemoception, right? Yes. Sensing yes. chemicals. Exactly. Yeah, so this is where with a sight we've got light. Uh, when you talk about hearing or touch, you're talking about actual physical experiences because you're sound about action. Yeah, yeah, sound is sound is motion. Really, it's it's motion of molecules in the air that are colliding with each other. Uh, if there weren't that motion, for example, if you were in the in in space in a vacuum, then you wouldn't hear anything because there'd be nothing to move and therefore nothing to stimulate uh, your your sense of hearing. Because uh, your sense of hearing depends upon little tiny uh, follicles, follicle-like structures that vibrate when they come into contact with these moving molecules that then continue to send signals further on. Like in, in human ears, we have these delicate uh, bones that then end up pressing against uh, kind of a chamber that's filled with a fluid that has other little cilia type uh, hairs in it. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, and <laughs> and the motion the motion of the fluid within that that chamber moves the cilia, which then send the electrical signals to your brain, which you then interpret as sound. We're getting so a lot of a lot of similar things here. Your your favorite music is really just all hairs and fluid. It's yeah. fluid and hairs. Bones hairs and fluid, and by hairs. the way, is the name of my Guar cover band. Yeah. <laughs> So don't steal it. <laughs> okay. What about touch? Touch. The, la- the one, last one of the big five. Yeah. Tactioception. Okay. So we're talking about neural receptors that are along things like uh, under your skin, uh, hair follicles, are another good example. This is mostly detecting changes in pressure. So when you press up against something, that's, those changes in pressure are what you detect. That ends up turning into these, again, nerve impulses that get sent to your central nervous system. And then get interpreted by Mr. Brain as, oh, that's what that is. Why Mr. Brain? Why not Mrs. Brain? Or Mrs. Brain. (laughs) Brain. Or Mrs. Brain. Okay. Really, how about Dr. Brain? Dr. Brain, I think. All right, Dr. Brain. I don't know. My brain isn't that smart most days. (laughs) Right. Nobody's brain is. No, no. Okay, how about this, though? Did you know you've got senses that don't even make the top five? We, We alluded to this earlier. How about this one, which I think is really cool. Everybody sort of knows they have it, but they don't think to distinguish it. It's called proprioception. Now, comes this is from super proprio, cool. the idea of one's own sense. Yes, sense of one's own body, as in you are you you know where your body parts are in relation to each other, even without other senses getting in the way. Right. Try a little experiment here. Okay, close your eyes and clap your hands. Oh, I hit the mic. <laughs> No, but probably most of the time you can do this. 
Why can you do this? Why can you see, you can tell where your hands are in relationship to each other without looking at them? Yeah. Yeah. It's this, it's this sense, this ability for us to, uh, to figure out where our body parts are. Another example, one that's commonly given in, in, uh, lecture halls when they talk about this sort of stuff or just even just grade school, that kind of thing. Close your eyes and attempt to touch your own nose. And uh, that, again, shows that you are aware of the position of where your nose is, where your finger is in relation to the nose, even while it's moving and then ending up someplace. You're able to process all of that without any sort of uh, visual stimulation. Right. If you've taken a drug or had an injury that has impaired your sense of proprioception, you might have trouble doing these things without looking at what you're doing. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So that's a pretty cool one, this idea of... uh you know, and, and again, it's one of those things where do you call it a sense? And there's some people who yeah, argue I think about it's it. It's a sense. I think so too. But Joe, there are people who don't. <laughs> I'm not saying that I don't, Joe. Don't get offended. <laughs> I don't know. I think that anyone who's, I mean, it, it's you, you juggle, Jonathan, and, and and that's kind of how you how you make that happen. You I have do. to know where your hands are without looking at yeah, them. Yeah, you can actually get to a point, and uh, once you get used to it, you can get to a point where you can maintain eye contact with other people and have a conversation and still continue to juggle. Oh, it's easier for me to, to, to do it that way than to actually watch what I'm doing. If I watch what I'm doing, I freak out and drop everything. <laughs> nice humble brag, y'all. <laughs> Look, I I don't juggle a lot, but when I do, it's on fire and it's sharp. Speaking of things that are on fire and sharp, how about nociception? Ah, sense of pain. Yeah, this is a sense of pain which people believe is actually independent from your sense of touch. Right. So They're, you use different uh, – it's a different neural system. Exactly. Yeah. In this case, uh, pain comes in various varieties. Anyone – who's been fortunate enough to experience these knows them well if you've juggled flaming machetes yeah essentially <laughs> you can you can divide these into pain that you sense along your skin uh, pain that is in your your joints or your bones and pain that's in your internal organs um, I'm sure we've all experienced these to some degree or another. Pain is essentially the body's way of an, of detecting a threat and telling you, hey, you should probably get away from that. Something is getting damaged, uh, so stop what you're doing and don't do it anymore. Right. So uh, now, obviously, there are some types of injuries that end up impairing this. For example, if you were to suffer a truly serious burn, I'm talking like third degree burn, then it can be so bad that it ends up frying the, the destroying the the, the, the neural cells. endings yeah. right mm -hmm. so then you could end up not feeling the pain until it's really a, a terrible injury but in general this is a, an effective warning system it really gives you a an incentive to stop doing whatever it is that's causing the problem. This is also a sense that can be impaired on its own. Yes. People can be unable to feel certain types of pain, and this can actually be dangerous. It sounds like a cool thing, but it's not something you want. Right, because if you are unable to feel pain, then you also may be unaware if you are suffering a type of injury. Yeah, you might be leaning against a hot stove and burning your skin and you don't even know. Right. Or you could be uh, freezing. You know, it's another temperature. Temperature sensing is a little different from pain sensing, but because uh, we also have that as our thermoception, our, as thermoception. But uh, but it can also lead to sensing pain, depending upon if it's reaching the extremity a certain threshold. of the right. Yeah. I have a question. Sure. What's the sense that lets me know whether or not I'm upside down? Equilibroception, Whoa. which is uh, that's 
That's when you... Uh, That's more to do with that inner ear fluid of yours. Yes. Yeah. Your woe is more of a Matrixception. Equilibrium was an excellent movie and oh, very similar to The Matrix. I wouldn't <laughs> call that an excellent movie. You know, I think it's better than The Matrix. But I, anyay, oh. <laughs> okay. Equil- we're going we're gonna to have a nerd fight when we get out of this one. Equilibrioception. All right. So the, yes. Tune into our other podcast, Nerd Fights. <laughs> <laughs> we, keep, we keep threatening to do that. And who knows? Maybe one day that will happen. Uh, equilibrioception. Yeah, this is the sense of balance. You, you're right. It is, Lauren, it does involve that inner ear, uh, because uh, partially, yeah. partially, yeah, because we're, we're talking about being able to detect things like angular momentum and acceleration, linear momentum and acceleration, and being able to, to maintain our sense of balance even as we move around. I mean, anyone who has ever, just, I mean, just, just being able to walk, like, you need that sense of balance in order to mm-hmm. be able to do that. If, if you were only standing perfectly still in the same orientation for your entire life wouldn't be so important. But we like to move around and we encounter environments that are not always perfectly level or perfectly stationary. And so obviously we need to have that sense of balance to be able to uh, to navigate that. Of course, the cool thing about that is you're actually not detecting movement. You're detecting acceleration or yes. deceleration yes. because we're always moving on the earth and right. we don't feel that. Yes. Because- well, we're used to it. <laughs> <laughs> if we yeah. were, if we were feeling the rotation and, and the, the revolution of the earth around the sun, we'd probably never stop screaming. All right. Uh, good. Good point, Jonathan. I just I just yeah. think we'd be like, I can't do anything else because I'm too busy. There I'm are so many good reasons to never stop screaming. Hurtling yeah. through space. Uh, oh my goodness gracious. Okay. But yeah, there are other senses <laughs> that we could talk about. You know, there's your sense of hunger. There's your sense of thirst. There are senses that we have internally that relate to various uh, types of of experiences we could have. Some would argue that some of them are. Related to things like uh, temperature or pain, it all depends upon, again, who's doing the talking, right? Yeah, and I guess there are some we we still might have questions about, like, does it make sense to call chronoception, the the sense of the passage of time, a sense? Is that a sense? Or is that, yeah, or is that just a... A short-term and long-term memory interaction. Yeah, it's it's a way that we codify. Especially considering that our memories are are very, very, very fallible, right? That, That... uh, or malleable, or, or both. Malleable is a um, yeah. That's an even better way of putting it, Lauren. Because as we well, it is. <laughs> I would call it ductile. <laughs> I'd call it plastic. All right. <laughs> At any rate, look, Joe, you're very smart too. I don't. I don't mean to. I don't mean to suggest otherwise. Stop. Uh, Stop. I love you both. All right. You're both my favorite. So anyway, but yeah, yeah. Memory is is malleable. Memory can change. We can we've known this like we know that uh, eyewitness testimony in court cases, while it tends to bear a lot of weight among jurors, is not terribly reliable because our memories are not 100 percent, not even close to 100 percent reliable. Okay, I want to get to other senses. And by other, I mean Beyond human senses. So these are senses that you might find in other organisms, but not in human beings. Right. Well, you might find them in some very small way in human beings, but not in a really appreciable right. sense. Not, not in a way that would be of any real use to the average person. Although we have some exceptions with a couple of these. Yeah. Mag- the first one we want to talk about, magnetoreception, might be different. Yeah, this is how uh, you are able I to think... sense X-Men comic books. <laughs> no. Uh, magnetoception. <laughs> Or magnetoreception. Or magnetoreception. 
Sure. Or whatever you want to say. It's the way an organism senses magnetic fields. Yes. This is one that I think there's some controversy over the extent to which this is present in humans, but we don't have a very strong sense of magnetoreception if we have right. any at all. Yeah, there's some people who argue that if you were to, say, live near power lines where you have a lot of alternating current, that that could uh, end up making you not feel well, which would suggest that there would be some sort of magnetoreception mechanism going on there. But double-blind studies don't seem to bear that out. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mostly the, the research that I've read has suggested that in many organisms, um, an end result of being exposed to magnetic fields is a subproduction of, of calcium ions, which which can which can affect your 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 overall health and well-being. Mm. Um, but that's like super not tested <laughs> research. I and, mean, that's, and it's also not something that you would necessarily like detect the presence of a magnetic field. You'd be certainly. affected by the presence. Right. Right. Well, another thing that might be there is like, uh, well, what if humans can use some innate sort of very subconscious magnetic information to help them navigate like people who are good at finding their way around there are some animals who can seriously do that really well oh sure. yeah like like uncannily for reals i mean this is what allows uh birds that migrate to in some cases migrate from the north pole to the south pole every year yeah That's right ridiculous well <laughs> it's because the earth generates its own magnetic field mm -hmm. and if you know that you well maybe not no let's just Let's not talk about cognition, but you're a bird that needs to go north at a certain time of the year, right. needs to go south at a different time of the year. And you have something going on in your brain and nervous system that, that triggers that instinct. Okay, now's the time to follow this magnetic signal. Right. Mm -hmm. there, as I recall, in the novel... Uh, version of Jurassic Park. Actually, the dinosaurs migrated. And, migrated because yeah, the... and so they aligned themselves with the magnetic fields because, and the, which proved one of the the uh, scientists' theory, and he got all excited about it, even as he was also <laughs> about to about die to get eaten terribly. by dinosaurs. Yeah. All yeah. right. So, um, how does it work in birds? Uh, research indicates that that it's. Uh, vision based and light dependent. Um, oh, yeah. That, that birds can only orient themselves magnetically if blue wavelengths of light are present. Um, that the hypothesis here, uh, again, this is not proven, is that birds see magnetic fields, perhaps as, as like dark or bright spots in their vision that move in pattern as the bird scans a scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is also which also falls in line with the way that we watch birds behave uh, when they're when they're migrating. That's pretty cool. So yeah, I, I remember uh, reading about this when I was writing the video uh -huh. script. Is uh, this cool idea that birds could actually see the magnetic fields like a grid over the vision that they uh -huh. have of normal light reflected, which is pretty cool. Like I would have I would have first imagined it to be more of a sense of touch. Just just if I were thinking of this without any. Extra, without the information here, sure. if you had just told me, how do you think it happens? I would have thought, oh, it's probably some sort of feeling thing. It wouldn't have occurred to me that it was a, a, visual, a visual, possibly right. a visual thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they think it might have to do with like the spins of entangled electrons and molecule pairs inside the bird's eyes. Whoa. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you want to dumb it down for everybody. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously they are not the birds are not the only animals that have used uh, magnetic uh, fields to help 
navigate? No. What about bees? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's there's lots. There's uh, salmon, sea turtles, spotted newts, lobsters, and fruit flies all also do this. But uh, but bees are a really interesting example because there's been a lot of research done in into both bees and birds actually in the past decade or so. Um, and it, yeah, bees can even be trained to respond in certain ways if they sense a magnetic field. Uh, training bees, I want to do that so much. Um, I love bees. Okay, so so. <sighs> Halo player. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. Um, so researchers think that, that the sense works like this. So, so the bees produce an iron oxide, uh, called, called magnetite in their bodies. And that magnetite gets stored in nanoparticle form inside a type of cell called a trophocyte. Um, and in the presence of a magnetic field, the particles either group together or move apart. And, and at this size of particle, uh, the, the process is called superparamagnetism. That's your word of the day in case you ever need that one. Um, <laughs> good, good 10 cent word. Uh, but so these, these changes in particle size trigger the release of those calcium ions that I was talking about earlier. And, and they react with other stuff in the cell and initiate this, this neural response. Interesting. Wow. And uh, also, of course, as I see here, we've, we've got a little note about bug senses that go beyond uh, the magneto reception and also just into other peculiarities of their sight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so bees, butterflies, and lots of other insects can see polarized light, which is not a thing that humans can see. Uh, it, it means that they can navigate by the sun's position even when it's cloudy. Um, they, they, they think that it comes from, um, a certain type of eye bit inside of insects' com- compound eyes, because yeah. most insects have several pairs of eyes. Right, uh, right, right. And, and so the, the compound ones have lots of little repeating parts, and uh, some of them contain these specialized photoreceptors. I, I wanna, I'm going to try and say the word. Amatidia. Uh, I didn't look it up, so amatidia sounds great to me. Works for me. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's the name of the eye bit. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then <laughs> It's my favorite eye bit. My... <laughs> So another this this also this is not something that's necessarily a replacement of a sense, but it's a very uh, specific use of a sense echolocation, which involves two things. Right. It involves making a sound, a particular sound, and then being able to hear that sound. And from that basic uh, the the making of the sound and hearing the echo come back, you are able to detect how far away something is from you. Uh, and uh, there are certain animals that depend heavily upon echolocation in order to get around or to uh, to catch food. Yeah, you think about the way uh, bats hunt insects at night mm-hmm. in yes. the dark, or how about the way that ocean-dwelling mammals hunt, like right. dolphins oh, and yeah. whales. A lot of those use echolocation to travel through the waves until it finds some delicious fish, and then they say, thanks for all the fish. Right. <laughs> and then they leave the earth. Yeah. Uh, the bats use very, very high pitched sounds that are beyond, usually beyond the range of human hearing. Uh, so we're talking hypersonic type sounds that are, uh, they're very high frequency. It also allows them to get incredible precision on, on, uh, when they're hearing echoes back, which is why they're able to use it to locate a, something as small as an insect that's flying in the air. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they're even able to compensate for the Doppler effect so that if they are flying toward an insect and they get that echo back, they're able to take into account this, uh, the fact that they are moving, the insect is moving and still know where that insect is in relation to where they are, uh, which is pretty cool when you think about it. That's, that's a very complex sort of thing. Now, granted, this is not something that the bats are necessarily knowing. They, it's just this right. is, this is right, a right. adaptation. Well, it goes into the way that 
obviously we don't know what it's like to be a bat or right. a dolphin. We can't be in that brain, but Bruce, Bruce Wayne does whatever these animals are creating in their head. They're somehow using this information to create a model of reality. That's pretty accurate. Right. The way that we do with our eyes, even though it's not the only way to see at, at least is accurate enough to say food is right over there. I yes. want that food. I'm going to go get it. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Now, <laughs> what's also interesting is that, we have some uh, some incidents of humans using a kind of echolocation to get around, unaided echolocation. Yeah, we'll talk about techno echolocation later on, but some people actually learn to do this without technology. Yeah, they make a a noise and then they can hear the difference, the noise, the noise they're making. It's supposed to be a consistent noise of some sort, even if they're singing a scale, it's their voice doing it, uh-huh. or if they're making a whistle noise, or they're making a click. They're, they're, they know what the sound sounds like normally, and then they catch the echo as they get closer and closer to the surfaces. object. Yeah. And so you have people who have vision impairments who have used this sort of uh, technique, and they're able to, to navigate things like hallways. But in, really, anyone who's, who's capable of hearing uh, is able to do this. So it's really if, just training your brain to, to recognize yeah. the, the discrep- discrepancies. It, yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. I'd imagine you could never train it to nearly the level of tuning that it would be in like a dolphin or a bat. We, or we wouldn't be able to produce nor hear the, the pitch of sounds that would give us that level of incredible detail, but we'd be able to tell things like if you're coming close to an obstacle or if something's coming toward you. So the example I saw online about how you could test this yourself is that if you have a friend that you trust, <laughs> and that who really does, that part's important. But uh, let's say your friend uh, holds up a frying pan uh, in front of your face. And uh, you, so first you just make make a noise, like maybe you're make, clicking your tongue or something along those lines, uh, where there's nothing in front of you. And then your friend puts said frying pan in front of your face. You have your eyes closed. You can't tell otherwise that this is happening, when you'd make that clicking noise, you would hear the difference. And by learning that difference, by learning how that would sound different, you would know, oh, I'm approaching some sort of obstacle that's blocking some of the sound, that's making it sound different to me. Uh, it's a little different. Uh, it's not, like I said, not as precise as we're seeing in the animal world, but, uh, it's, sure. but it still works. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's we, we don't need to find insects with our voices for survival, so we, we have not developed right. most, that. Well, most of us depend so heavily on vision that yeah. we haven't developed that skill set. Right. I've got another crazy one for you. How about chemoreceptors in skin? So So you mean like tasting with things other than our, our, our tongue or smelling things yeah. other than with our nose. That's oh, exactly what I mean. So like, I don't want to <laughs> taste things with my hands. <laughs> but no. you do. You so do. Because you... then you'd be like kind of like a catfish. So we think that some fish might have chemoreceptors on exterior skin surfaces. In other words, it's basically like having taste buds on your body. And there's a reason that we, we talk about fish there, because especially when you live in the water. Oh, that matters. Being right. able to detect what chemicals are passing through the water around you or, say, lying along the bottom of a stream bed mm-hmm. might be really important to helping you find food, find oh, sure. mates, find whatever it is. Yeah. Oh. However, uh, for humans, uh, just think of the doorknob, guys. <laughs> 
Just the doorknob. I don't, I don't like thinking about doorknobs to begin with. I'm not really germaphobic. But See, yeah. I, I think you're being unfair here because the reason you don't want to taste doorknobs is because you don't want to lick doorknobs the, because you might be ingesting germs. The, but what if you could taste the doorknob without necessarily getting all germy? Joe, Josh Clark uses the same <laughs> podcast suite. I do not want to taste that doorknob. You're probably tasting his microphone right now. Oh, that's that's pretty accurate. Okay, how about heat vision? That's another one. Oh, you mean like, like Superman where you can zap stuff? No, no, no. I mean no sensing eye lasers. heat. Although we of, all know that space cats have eye lasers. A lot of comic book references for me today. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay, so we can already sense heat in a certain way. We sense heat with our skin, right. obviously. Sure. Feeling sort of intense temperature differences. Uh-huh. And, and heat is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's It's just at a range that we cannot see with our eyeballs. Right. Well, yeah. So heat is thermal energy and thermal energy, uh, any object with a temperature. So imagine something like a human body or a recently dead monster or a... (laughs) (laughs) So so Godzilla has suffered a terrible fate. Everything is technically, everything that is uh, above absolute zero is technically radiating some form of heat, even yeah. if it feels to us very cold. It yeah, just it, matters whether or not it's radiating more heat than the ambient environmental temperature. Right. Right. Well, whatever it is, it's emitting thermal radiation. And those waves can be found on the infrared spectrum. So the infrared spectrum is made of longer wavelengths of light than the light that's normally visible to humans. So we can't normally see infrared. But if we could... We could basically see differences in temperature like predator. (laughs) So there you go. Predator. Some real animals, however, are basically already predator. Uh, Boas, pythons and snakes in the viper subfamily Crotalinae, also known as pit vipers, are able to detect heat via infrared radiation. So these snakes have pit organs located between the eyes and the nostrils on their little snake faces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, the organs consist of membranes that are sensitive to radiation on the infrared spectrum, so the pits help the snakes see the body heat of the prey, and they can zero in to make a strike even in the darkness. Oh, wow. That's, That's really cool and scary. Pretty intense. Yeah. So, wait a minute. Why don't we just normally see light on the infrared spectrum? Well, apparently there would be a conflict there. If we could see infrared light, apparently it would overwhelm our eyes and we would be unable to see all the normal light that we need in order to to navigate the day-to-day world. Uh, we're we're back to wouldn't stop screaming kind of territory, yeah. 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 I guess so it'd be you know, if you want to use a different sense, it would be like our sense of hearing if you went into a room where there were just multiple loud sources of noise and you were trying to concentrate on something someone was saying and that's what your experience was all the time it'd be very difficult to ever hear anything yeah okay i got another one this is crazy electroreception i'm not going to make a spider-man joke <laughs> If you are a fan of Shark Week, you probably know about this one. This is the ability to sense electrical currents in one's environment. So sharks can do this. Certain fish can do this. It's common in uh, animals that dwell in the water, typically seawater, which makes sense because even though water is resistant to electrical current, it's more conductive than air. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially seawater because it has salt in it and those ions make it easier for the electricity to travel. Right. So sharks, for example, use electroreception organs called ampullae de Lorenzini. Right. These are little dots around the shark's face, around the base of the jaw, 
that detect movement of live prey in water via electrical signals. So the receptors are sensitive to tiny changes in voltage that are caused by, say, the heartbeat of a fish or the flapping muscle movement of a fish's fins, and that that transmits its electricity through the water. And the sharks are really sensitive. Uh, Kristen Conger wrote a good article about this for How Stuff Works. She says in her article that sharks can sense changes in electrical current down to one billionth of a volt. That would be one nanovolt. Oh, well, said with authority. <laughs> uh, it, it's a really beautiful sense. I'm a little bit obsessed with this one. Some some baby sharks develop this before they're even born, and they can use the sense to avoid detection by possible predators. They, they'll be in these little shark egg sac things, and they'll instinctually hold still if they sense something big nearby. Wow. Yeah, um, not so useful if you're in an environment that is not electrically conductive. Right. So could we use this? Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute when we right, mm-hmm. right. when we talk about technological amplification of senses. Uh, so one last thing I just wanted to talk about is that these ways of creating internal pictures of the world are useful because of the environments we live in here on Earth and because of the laws of physics more broadly. Mm-hmm. But just as one example, the wavelengths of light that we call the visible spectrum, so all the colors you can see with your eyes, they're just wavelengths. Yeah. I mean, they could be any wavelengths, but it's good for us to see at those wavelengths because those are the wavelengths that penetrate our atmosphere. Radio mm-hmm. frequencies also do, but a lot of frequencies on the electromagnetic spectrum don't make it down to the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. Right. So those things coming down from the sunlight actually make it here. We can see them reflect off things, and that's why it's good for us to see those surfaces. But what if we'd evolved on a world where the most abundant radiation from the sun was ultraviolet? Or what if you could imagine a a creature that could see radio waves? They'd go bonkers here. (laughs) Because based upon all the Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, broadcast signals, not to mention just the natural radio waves that are emitted by stuff like stars and, and other other sources, uh, it'd probably be a little overwhelming. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'd imagine that like the way we experience light, they wouldn't see the waves themselves, but they'd see them reflected off of surfaces. Uh-huh. Yeah, still would be pretty crazy. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay, so let's talk body hacking. Okay, <laughs> sure. So we're talking about let's say that I want to be more like one of these animals or a predator or something like that. I want to be a shark. I want to be a spider. I want to be a predator. You want to all be a these, spider shark. All these things have spider fangs because shark. all the best things to be have fangs. Yeah. What what if I want to do actually let's start with the cuter things. Birds and bees. What if I want to <laughs> be like a bird or a sea turtle or a bee and use a magnetic sense to make a model of reality in my head? Well, Joe, one thing you could do, though I don't recommend it, <laughs> is to surgically implant a small permanent magnet on the tip of one of your fingers, preferably the ring finger on your non-dominant hand, in case something should go terribly lo- wrong and you lose all feeling in that finger. You talk as if you've read about people doing this. I, in fact, have read about people doing <laughs> this. So, yeah, biohackers, also known as grinders, or depending on where you're from, hoagies or subways, um... <laughs> So biohackers have been known to perform uh, little surgeries on themselves or to have, you know, a body modification person perform a surgery. We should stress right now 
We this, are not advocating this. Not at all. And it's generally illegal uh, yeah. in most places. Yeah, because even body modification folks, it's not like they are necessarily trained in things like surgery. Uh, and and most surgeons, most actual you know surgi- surgical doctors that you could go and visit in, say, a hospital or, or other office, won't do these things because it's not necessarily considered ethical. So I, I don't know if there's no licensed doctor who will do it, but I have found no evidence of one who will. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's not de- generally deemed medically necessary, and the potential to do harm outweighs, therefore, the potential for good almost almost immediately. Yeah, it's one of those things where you say, look, uh, until there's some best practices that are established for this sort of thing, it's an unnecessary and uh, unnecessarily risky. Endeavor. So, but the idea is that you use a small permanent magnet, yeah, powerful permanent magnet, like a neodymium. Yeah, neodymium being a, a prime example. Uh, get a small magnet and implant it just under the skin. Like I said, usually on the ring finger of the non-dominant hand. You'd probably want to coat it in some kind of non-reactive plastic coating, right. like perylene, which is what they use to. Say, put a pacemaker in your body. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in your body that could end up corroding various materials or you could end up having uh, an allergic reaction to stuff or your body could just end up thinking of it as an infection and Mm -hmm. trying to fight it off. Uh, But so once once it's in there, what what is that? What does that do? All right. So, well, messes up your computer screen. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to don't want to put your (laughs) finger too close to any any screens that require it. So what it does is it allows you to detect magnetic fields or uh, electric fields because we know there's that right. that electromagnetic close, forces. Right. There's there's that close relationship between electro electric electricity, I guess I should say, and magnetism. So uh, if you have a fluctuating uh, electric field, then you're going to detect it whenever you come near it. If it's a static electric field, then you will detect it when you come into range. But then it would probably it would stop pulling. Well, I mean, I mean, by detect, you mean uh, you're, you're you're going to feel. The magnet being the magnet being pulled, yeah, pushed. it'll vibrate a little bit for, uh, depending upon what sort of uh, a magnetic or electric field you're coming into contact with. Right. They say with like big, powerful electric fields, if it's direct current, you feel a tug. Yeah. If it's alternating current, you feel a vibration. Yeah. Uh, they say that this is crazy if you get ser- near anything like, say, a microwave oven while it's turned on. <laughs> yeah. So you'd be able to feel that. Uh, if, of course, if you came into contact with any magnets, you could you would feel the tug. If it was a powerful magnet, you could feel being stuck to it. Um, <laughs> if it's a powerful enough electromagnet, uh, like, say, in an uh, MRI? MRI, you could suffer some serious damage. Uh, so that would be one thing you would have to let anyone know that you have this magnet in your body if you were to uh, go in for like an MRI scan, because otherwise you could cause some pretty serious uh, havoc uh, inside the the, um, the machine. The machine, yeah. yeah. But uh, it, the idea is that it extends our senses so that when you come into contact with these things, which normally we would be unaware of, right? We would normally not notice it unless something on us reacted to it. Now we've got something, you could have something in you that would react to this, something that's particularly sensitive to this sort of stuff. And not only that, but using the same technology, the same procedure of having a magnet implanted in your finger, you can pair that with other devices that are able to detect completely different types of uh, uh, data and and feel it. So, for example, let's say you've got a sensor that can pick up, um, I don't know, let's say infrared. It's a sensor that can pick up infrared and it has a threshold. So anything over a certain amount 
that sensor generates enough electricity to activate an electromagnet. You also happen to have one of these magnets in your finger. So you're pairing this external device with the magnet in your finger. You move the external device around, and whenever it detects heat that is above that threshold, it sends that signal and you feel it. So you now know if something is hot, even if you're not close to it. Or another example would be echolocation, where it sends out an ultrasonic signal. It comes back, and as you get closer and closer to an object, it sends pulses to an electromagnet, which again trigger the magnet that's in your finger, so you can actually feel when you get closer to something without seeing it. So I've seen demonstrations of this where a person is sitting down at a table, they have a blindfold on, they've got one of these little devices, and they've got the magnet in their finger, and someone puts something down in front of them, like a box of cereal. And and they're told that there is something on this table uh, in front of you, you have to detect where it is without reaching out and trying to just grope around. And so they would use this little ultrasonic echolocation device and point it. And when they would hit where the cereal box was, it's, oh, it's right there because I can feel it. I can feel the, the, you know, from the sensor. So it's kind of a two step process here, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, I've seen it paired with a lot of different ways. And in fact, a lot of biohackers say that the, the ability to detect a magnetic field or an electric field is just, that's just the tip of the iceberg if you pair it with these other technologies. Yeah. So one of the, number one, I think this is really cool in theory. Again, not endorsing the self surgery thing. Yeah. No. But the idea of expanding your senses is really cool. The second thing, though, is it is interesting that what you're doing here is you're sort of repurposing part of one sense or a combination of senses to give you new data. So you're still expanding your ability to build a mental picture of the outside world. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing is giving yourself an implant that uses your innate, probably a combination of your sense of touch and your proprioception. Right. Your sense of where your finger is and your feeling of movement within it to send that data to your brain. So it's a cognitive adaptation. Right. You're You're using your thoughts. You're not adding, you're not adding some brand new type of sensor that has to form a brand new kind of neural relationship with your brain for this to happen. What you're doing is you're just interpreting a new set of touch stimuli and you're applying that to a different, you know, a different experience. But it's not like you had to invent something new. Like you had to figure out, oh, well, now I've got to figure out uh, how my brain interprets magnets. It's not because it's not the <laughs> right. magnets. Right. It's, the, it's the sense of that sense of pressure. Yeah, we're going to talk about a few more and this will actually apply to pretty much all of them or I guess all of them. Mm-hmm. They're all talking about repurposing part of one sense to create new ways of modeling reality. They're not talking about creating a new sense that didn't exist before because Frankly, we just don't know enough about the brain to do that. Uh, right. And in most cases, we don't understand enough about how we actually input that data in the first place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about another one, another potential sense. What about electroreception? Could you have electroreception like a shark? And I want to go ahead and say, I don't really think so. That <laughs> one's not so much on the radar, mainly because you don't want to live in the ocean. Right. Well, uh, we, don't we did a whole, we did, did a whole episode about living under the ocean. Yeah, but that was living in capsules. You you don't want to live in the water. No, I would get really pruny. Fair yeah. play. Fair play. That would be pruny, pruny landscape of badness. Yeah, no, that yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> Seascape of badness. Sorry. I will yeah. allow anyway, you. Anyway, so the sharks and other electroreceptive animals live in water and the air doesn't 
conduct electrical currents like seawater does the way we talked about. So do no land animals have this sense? I found evidence of one, uh, one land-dwelling animal that uses electroreception. That's the Australian echidna or echidna? Echidna. Echidna, Echidna, yeah. 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 It's sort sort of like a platypus. And here's how it works. It digs around in the wet topsoil with its beak, which has electroreceptors that detect the squigglings of earthworms somewhere down in that moist soil. Mm-hmm. Does that sound like a power up you want? I think uh, I think I could write an entire series about a superhero whose only power was the <laughs> detection of earthworms to root around in the ground with its nose. It's just that's mm. all he could do. It'd be about as good as Aquaman. Uh, yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Lateral move. <laughs> okay, okay. What about infrared sensing? I think this is a really cool one, and it's actually tied into some research that's good for other reasons. So we already talked about the natural infrared sensing of snakes, but it is possible to teach your brain to interpret infrared signals with the help of technology. So in 2013, researchers led by Duke University neurobiologist Miguel Nicolelis published findings on a study that used a neural implant to bring infrared vision to mice. Or maybe not vision, I don't know. It's probably something more like long-range infrared touch. Interesting. Yeah, so the way it worked was the Duke scientists created an electronic infrared sensor. So that's just a standard mechanical infrared sensor. Right. External to the mouse's brain. It mounts on the forehead. Then they wired the device directly to the mouse's brain. So the device can send electrical impulses down into the somatosensory cortex, which is the part of the mouse's brain that interprets tactile information like touch. Mm -hmm. Specifically, they said it was to the part that comes from the touch on the mouse's whiskers. Okay. So let's try it out. You, You put a mouse in a contraption like this with its brain all wired up and you put it in a test chamber with multiple ports, say ports A through D. And each one of these ports has the capability to light up with an infrared light, which is normally invisible to mice. Mm-hmm. It's invisible to all mammals. Right. Now, when the infrared light comes on at a port, that port offers a sip of water as a reward if the mouse runs to that port. After a period of training, the mice were able to use the neural implant to quickly detect and find rewards based on infrared light that's invisible to their eyes. Wow. And that's pretty cool directly to the brain yeah Mm -hmm. so one interesting observation was that before the mice were trained they reacted to the data coming from the implant by scratching at their faces like they were itching so they interpret it literally as a physical sensation something like a tickle on the face oh wow because it was wired to that same part of their brain so so they were like i see this thing and it's making my face itch yeah and the people who who authored this study emphasized how This isn't limited just to infrared, say, or to this kind of part of the brain. It's generally a proof that, hey, we could expand this. We could use technology to sense things and then send that data directly to the brain. So you wouldn't have to route it through some other part of the body or sense. And another one of the things about it is that they showed how you can hijack part of the brain to, so in this case, the part of the brain that detects touch, 
to detect a new type of data without destroying that part of the brain's natural abilities. So the mice still had an intact sense of touch. It wasn't oh, that okay. this they, system... They could still run around and, and detect where they were, uh, you know, wind currents based on their whiskers or if they were brushing against something. They, that was still fine? Sure, yeah. You could you could partially hijack this sense without destroying its natural capabilities. Huh. So what's interesting to me <clears throat> is that we talked about in nature how birds see magnetic fields or at least that's what we that's the that's the prevailing that's theory prevailing mm-hmm. prevailing theory that they're seeing magnetic fields and now we've got mice feeling infrared and i would have put <laughs> those uh i would have switched those <laughs> just just based upon like if i were again if you weren't giving me all this information and you just told me how do you ex- how do you think they perceive this like was it was it most analogous to for yeah, people i, I would have wonder... gone with vision for infrared and feeling for magnetic Fields, oh, I wonder the why they own. why they chose specifically the the whisker touchy. I bet it's probably simpler. I'd suspect it had to do with the part that they the part of the brain that they understood the best. Yeah, probably. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you were to put it in say the visual cortex, it might be that the mice just start hallucinating like crazy. <laughs> you just have a <laughs> mouse just tripping out. And that's that's not a very useful mouse. That's just pinky in the brain. Yeah. Speaking of tripping, what about Human echolocation using some sort of electronic device. Oh, yeah. We mentioned that earlier. Well, that's real. People have created this. Uh, let's talk about Spider-Man. Okay. What is Spider-Man's <laughs> spidey sense? How does it work? Uh, well, magic. But if no, you... no, no. I'm not asking the mechanism. What's what's it do? Oh, it detects him? danger. Yeah. So, so when, it... when something is about to hit Spider-Man upside the head, he gets a little early warning, which allows him to use his amazing boosted uh, reflexes to dodge out of the way before said thing smacks him upside the head. Right. So when he's in the movie theater talking through the movie and people behind him start throwing soda bottles and stuff like that at him, he he knows it's coming before him. Yeah, you can tell from the little squiggly lines that come out from his head. Mm -hmm. That's the spidey sense. Yes. Yeah, the exact mechanical causation of the spider sense is, I believe, unknown in the Spider-Verse. Yeah, it's magic. Spider, Spider-Man-Verse. spider Yeah. It's not magic, it's science. The Spader-Verse. No, the, the web-slinging is science. It's spider-science. <laughs> All right, fine. But you might be able to simulate this with sound-based echolocation, or probably with, with light-based echolocation also, with like radar or something. But the specific ex- example I want to talk about here is sound-based. So a computer science grad student named Victor Mativizzi created a project called the Spider Sense Suit last year. And here's how it works. All over your body, so your legs, chest, back, arms, you've got little suit nodes connected by wires. And at each of these nodes are ultrasound microphones. They send out ultrasonic signals and then listen for them to bounce back at a distance of up to 17 feet. As an object comes closer, tiny robotic arms at the nodes facing the object apply pressure to the skin, letting you know that you're near a solid piece of matter. So with a system like this, you could navigate hallways with your eyes closed or sense people approaching you silently from behind. And apparently the creators used it to throw cardboard shuriken at attackers while blindfolded. <laughs> so you could become a cardboard ninja. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I love this idea. And, you know, we call this haptic feedback, this idea right. that when you have some sort of sensory input, and then you get this tactile output. Uh, so video games use this all the time. Like we, just a rumble controller is an, a simple mm-hmm. example, but there are a lot of other ones. I've seen things like um, chest plates and helmets that vibrate so that every time you're shot, you get a little 
uh, zap or, or sometimes it's a bit of an impact, a thud. Uh, but in this case, it's one that's responding not to a, uh, an action within a video game, but rather getting closer to some sort of object because the ultrasonic signal has gone out, bounced back and indicated how far away that thing is and whether or not it's approaching or moving further away. Again, the Doppler effect comes into play there. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but, but, but ultrasonic waves are really quite precise. So, yeah. Yeah. So you can, can be measured really quite precisely. And in I fact, and in fact, since there's so many nodes too, that also, that helps with the precision because, uh, you have, you, uh, presumably they're all sending out these signals and the time that it starts coming back, it can actually be pretty precise on the w- direction of the oncoming object. Or yeah. person or whatever. I guess, I guess we couldn't comment on exactly how precise this thing is because we haven't used it. But obviously it was, it was precise enough that it was useful in these demonstrations. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool idea. I like the potential applications for it. Even if it never goes beyond, say, a curiosity, it's still pretty cool. Although you could see, quote unquote, you could see potential, uh, applications that would be pretty useful. So yeah, I mean, uh, our senses are pretty amazing. The more we learn about them, the more phenomenal they seem, even even though it's kind of mundane because it's the stuff we live with day in and day out. What we are able to accomplish is pretty incredible when you think of all the chemicals we're detecting, all the light we're able to interpret. But that doesn't mean that we have to be satisfied with them. So <laughs> I, I do think that it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, we're going to find more and more ways in the future to create ways to augment these senses, either to make them uh, like our vision more, even more keen or perhaps being able to detect further outside the vis- what's normally considered the visible spectrum. Maybe we'll be redefining what is detectable by human means in another decade or two. Who knows? I, I think one cool thing about this might apply to theoretical astrobiology, because if you're talking about the ways that we can expand human senses, you might also be coming up with cool ideas for how aliens might create models of the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no reason to expect that they would use the same kind of senses we do to create physical models of reality. Right. Yeah. They might have an entirely different way of sensing their environments and interacting with them and and uh, deriving meaning from things, which – uh, presents itself with lots of different scenarios, many of which I'm sure we will explore in science fiction down the road because it, the mind boggles, really. I mean, you could have an alien race that has a completely different con- uh, construction of, of what reality is based upon the, the kinds of data that it can mm-hmm. receive and interpret. It could be just as accurate and useful to them as ours is to us. Right. It would just be alien, yeah. which is kind of cool. Well, Anyway, that wraps up this discussion. If you guys out there have any suggestions for topics we should tackle in future episodes of Forward Thinking, you should let us know. You can send us an email. The address is fwthinking at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. The handle at all three locations is fwthinking. And we'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. 
and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.